Well, it's great to see you guys this morning. I'm not going to lie. I, uh, I feel a little lighter today than I have felt the last couple of weeks. I rolled into the office going, yes, I get to deal with the topic of temptation this week. And I say that because if you're new to us, what we're doing here at Rio is we're asking and answering questions. We crowdsourced a bunch of questions through our congregation, through their family members, through their friends. We said, all right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to answer them as best we can from the perspective of the Bible and of Christianity. And for the last three weeks or so, we have dealt with the most severe and difficult of all of those questions, at least in my opinion. And so this week I I told Beth, I said, man, I feel like I've just been let out of jail. All I have to do is talk about temptation. So, you know. Because temptation is not controversial. And here's what else it is. It's something that everybody can relate to. The question is, how do I overcome temptation? And here's why we got so many people asking that question. Because every person, everywhere, wants to know the answer to that. Because we give into it. We're overcome by it. And when we're overcome by it, it doesn't do good things in our lives. It doesn't do good things to our health, to our relationships with each other, with God, with our spouse, or whomever. It's tough. Our ruin, in a lot of ways, can be traced back to temptation. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this question to Jesus because he is the person in all of humanity who knows more about the power of temptation than any other person who has ever lived for the simple reason that he never gave into it. You're like, that doesn't seem like it makes sense to me. Like that, That doesn't seem to add up. Like he never gave into temptation. What does he know about it? Everything. He knows the full weight of its power. I don't. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about temptation and about Jesus and about us. He says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, he says, as a man who endured two world wars as an Englishman, You find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until... We try to fight it in Christ because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. So we're going to take this question of how do I overcome temptation to the only complete realist, to the only one who understands what temptation really means, and we're going to ask him, all right, what do we do with this? And we're going to look for the answer in the most famous temptation story ever told about anyone, and we find that story in Luke 4, beginning in verse 1, where Luke, the the gospel writer, says this. He says, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River, where if you know the story, he's just been baptized by John the Baptist. And then Luke tells us that Jesus was led by the Spirit. He was led by God out into the wilderness where he remained for 40 days, being what? Here it is, tempted by the tempter himself. And we're told that Jesus ate nothing during those 40 days. And so then when those 40 days were ended, he was physically very hungry and therefore also very weak and vulnerable to temptation. And so then that's when the devil, the tempter, steps out of the shadows where he's been sitting and waiting and lurking and looking for that moment of greatest weakness and vulnerability. 
And he comes to Jesus with the first of three temptations and he says this, and I want you to remember this language, it actually matters. He says, if you are the son of God, temptation number one, then command the stone here to become a big warm loaf of bread. And I think it's important to note that in saying this, he's not saying, Jesus, if you are the son of God, then prove it by making this stone here a big warm loaf of bread. He knows that Jesus is the son of God. He gets that. What he's saying is, since you are the son of God, and since God, your father, led you out into this place of total deprivation, a place where there's no food, a place where there's no way for you to survive, and since your God has not provided you with so much as a snack, like zero food, he has given you nothing. And how long have we been out here? It's been like 40 days running at this point, right? And since food for you, Jesus, because you are a God man, is necessary for physical life, like you will die if you don't eat pretty soon. And since you are the Son of God, capable of doing miracles, you can turn a stone into a big warm loaf of bread. Why are you waiting around for your father who has shown himself to be untrustworthy at this point to do something for you that, I mean, you can do for yourself? You see how it works? It's remarkable. The evil one waits until we are at our weakest. And when is that? It's when we're most hungry for something. Whatever it may be, attention, affirmation, popularity, comfort, rest, relief, We're starving for it. And then he steps into our lives and gathers up all of the admittedly God-ordained circumstances of our lives. Like there's a lot of truth to what the evil one says here. It's what makes it so powerful. It is true, Jesus is the son of God. It is true that God has led him out into the wilderness where there's no food. It's true that he's left him out there for more than 40 days at this point or for 40 days without so much as a snack. It's true that food is necessary for life and if he doesn't eat, he's gonna die. It's true that he can make a snack out of a stone if that's what he wants to do. He waits till you're most hungry for something and therefore then most vulnerable, steps out of the shadows, gathers up all of the God-ordained circumstances of your life, and then reinterprets them for you in such a way as to make God look bad and you look alone. You know why you're starving? It's because God's unfaithful. You know why you're withering away? It's because God is uncaring. You know why you're suffering and dying? Because God is unloving. So why don't you do the obvious thing? Take your life back out of the hands of that God. Disregard him for he's disregarded you. And do whatever you've got to do to satisfy the appetites that you have. You are hungry. Go get something to eat. It's powerful. And we do that. But Jesus didn't do that. It says in verse four that Jesus answered Satan and he said, it is written. And so then the question is, well, then where is it written? And the general answer to that is it's written in the Bible. But the specific answer to that is it's written in Deuteronomy 8 verse three, which recalls a season of time in the life of God's people, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, where they wandered around in the wilderness. Do you hear that word? Place of deprivation, not for 40 days, but for 40 years. So you can see where Jesus' mind is at. You can sense what he's reflecting on. 
And God miraculously sustained them, if you know the story, in the wilderness for 40 years with this bread from heaven called manna, which he gave, according to Jesus, not just to sustain them physically, but to teach them and us a lesson. And what's the lesson? He says, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but instead, as the rest of that verse in Deuteronomy makes clear, Man shall live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, which means that Jesus is resolved to trust in God and in his word, even when his life hangs in the balance, and even when the circumstances of his life, ordained by God, can reasonably be interpreted to indicate that he shouldn't. It's remarkable. And here's what else he's resolved to do necessarily then. He's resolved to trust God to give him the strength to deal with his hunger yet another day. And then after that, if necessary, yet another day. And then after that, if necessary, yet another day, which is how the manna of God's grace works. You know, I think that one of the reasons why we give in to temptation is because we look at the strength of the temptation and we compare it to our strength and we realize we're done. (laughs) We're overmatched. We have no shot as opposed to comparing it to God's strength. But I think another part of the deal is what we want is for God to give us a six-month advance on strength. You know, we want him to just put six months in the bank and then we can draw on it day by day. And when it starts winding down, we'll come back for another six months. So we'll see in six months when I need six months more. And it's not the way that the Lord works, like anywhere. Think of the manna principle. What is it? I'm going to give you enough for today. And then tomorrow, I'm going to give you enough for that day. And then the next day, I'm going to give you enough for that day. And I'm going to make it so that you know that you need me to get through it day by day by day by day. Why? Because his purpose is to make life difficult for us? No, because his purpose is to grow in relationship with us. He creates a system whereby he understands that our wandering hearts, if we have six months in the bank, I'll see you in six months. By nature, our wandering hearts are tied to him. And we've got to come back day after day after day after day anyway, since temptation, number one, doesn't work. Luke says this in verse five. He says that then the devil took Jesus up onto some undisclosed elevated place and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in some kind of a vision. And then the devil said to him, okay, temptation number two, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it, meaning the whole world has been delivered to me. And I don't want to run by that because that would be really distracting if I just kind of move on. Like you might go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Can we stop and talk about that? Because that sounds crazy. Like who did that? Because I think that person should be fired, don't you? Like if that person worked for you, you'd just sit them down and go, listen, we're going to have to let you go. And we're not even going to give you severance. Like that whole week severance for every year you've been here, not for you. This was a terrible idea. But the Lord has done that. I mean, he had to be the one. Jesus doesn't argue the point. There's some sense in which God has delivered some measure of control, if you will, of what transpires in our lives and in this world over to the evil one. And you say, okay, well, explain, because that's pretty miserable. Why did he do that? And we talked about that actually five, six, eight weeks ago probably. We talked about the reason for which God created everything. We said God created everything to reveal himself to everything and everyone that exists. And that that's not in the least arrogant on God's part. He is the single greatest being and thing and object in the whole of the universe. And it is our single greatest joy. He's made us in this way. 
to be thrilled by him. But here's the deal, God is good. And you don't know good without evil. And he wants you to know how good he is. If all you knew was good, you wouldn't understand it. You wouldn't appreciate it. You wouldn't realize how good good actually is. But if you know evil, then good all of a sudden shines all the brighter, does it not? God is loving. He is love. You don't know love without hate. God is life. You don't know life without death. God is truth. You don't know truth without falsehood, joy without sorrow. The freedom of, and relief of grace and mercy without the need for it. So there's some sense in which the Lord has delivered some measure of authority and power to the evil one for the purpose of for eternity, you and I being able to love and appreciate God all the more, which is a remarkable and not completely uncomplicated thought. But it makes the offer valid. So the evil one says to Jesus, temptation number two, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered at least for a time to me and I give it to whomever I will, but here's the condition, okay? If you then will worship me as opposed to your father, it will all be yours. Translation, Jesus, I know that your father has promised you the world. Can we just agree on that? Yes, okay, good. But you and I both know as well that he's gonna require you to suffer infinitely and to die like a really torturous death in order to gain the world. And I, being a merciful Lord, think that that's asking too much of you. So here's what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to give it to you all today. No suffering, no death, nothing. And all I'm asking you to do is take a moment to turn your back on your father, fall to your knees, oh my great creator, and worship me, one of your created objects, things, or beings. And that too, I think, is how the evil one works. It's how he keeps people away from Christianity, and it's how he affects us as Christians as well, to disrupt our relationship with the Lord. He comes to us and says, hey, you know, if you become a Christian, look at all that you're going to have to give up. Or if you are a Christian, but you want to get serious about following Jesus, look at the cost. And I think we need to be honest about the cost. The cost is everything. He doesn't come and say, listen, I'd love to fit into some nice little box in your compartmentalized life that stays in the box entirely and doesn't affect any other box or any other area. No, no, no. He comes in and says, look, here's the deal. Bring me you. All that you are, mess, good stuff, whatever. And let me go to work with you. Let me go to work in you. Let's work together on you. Let's see what we can do in and through you. But the problem is, all we focus on is the cost. We look at, oh, well, look, you know, look at, look at, look at what this is going to cost me in time. Look at what this might cost me in dollars. Look at, look at now I've got to clue him in on my career decisions and, and what's that's going to require of me here and here and here and here. And we, we don't think about the gain. It's like in Christ, you gain everything and you're left wanting for nothing. It's a remarkable thought. And beyond that, when he begins to work on your heart, when, when you're fellowshipping with him day by day, he changes your desires. You know, you start wanting to do things you never would have otherwise wanted to do. You stop wanting to do things. Do you hear the word temptation in that? You stop wanting to do things that you used to live to do. It's a remarkable transformation. And here again, where we have failed, Jesus, our hero, succeeds completely. 
says in verse eight, and Jesus answered the evil one and said, it is written this time in Deuteronomy 6, 13, that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So having failed twice now, he comes with his final pitch. Beginning in verse nine, it says, and the devil then took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, which is almost certainly referring to one of the corners of the temple mount that towered over the city, way up high. And he said to him, once again, if you are the son of God, important language, then throw yourself down from here. And here too, he's not saying, if you are the son of God, throw yourself, no, he's saying, no, no, since you are the son of God, you should do this. And here's why you should do this, Jesus, because as we've already discussed, all right, your father has promised you the world, but you're going to have to suffer and, keyword die to get it. And you're going to do that upon promise of resurrection, a promise that's been made to you by a father who's 40 days into your starvation death here. You sure you want to do that? That make a lot of sense? Why don't we do this? Why don't you jump off and make him prove himself? Because, and now, the tempter starts quoting scripture. He says, for it is written in Psalm 91, he, meaning God the Father, will command his angels concerning you and that he will do that in order to guard you. And more than that, God also says in Psalm 91, that on their hands, meaning on the hands of these angels, they will what? They will bear you up, or literally, they will raise you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Jesus, jump off and make him do that. Then you'll know he's in this with you all the way to the end. And honestly, if he doesn't catch you, this is a less miserable way to go. So everybody wins. But the problem is that the tempter's way of interpreting Scripture is not Jesus' way of interpreting Scripture. Just curious, isn't it? Jesus is looking at that same statement, and he's like, that's not what that means. That raising up is a reference to the third day, when God will keep his promise to raise me up. That raising up, that, that angelic bearing up, that's a rolling away of a stone that covers a cave in which I will be laying to rest and then come forth alive on Easter. So we're learning how this whole deal works. He reinterprets the circumstances of our lives in such a way as to make God look unfaithful and us look alone. So, you know, get after it. He comes to us and says, all right, listen, the Lord is asking way too much from you. He's depriving you of this. He's denying you of this. He's keeping you from that. And he causes us to forget what we gain and how it all works. And then he comes and says, you know, there are some inconvenient passages of Scripture in the Bible. I mean, this, you know, if you do this, it's going to be costly. Not just for you, maybe for others, whatever. So let's rework this thing. Let me give you another look at this. And he reorients it around our convenience and to help us mitigate suffering. But here again, Jesus succeeds and Luke tells us that Jesus answered Satan and he said, look, this time in Deuteronomy 6.16, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then we're told that the devil ended every temptation and he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. In other words, until he sensed another moment of weakness. And you say, well, when was that? Because we have the narrative of his life, do we not? I think we listen for the language. If you are the son of God, when does Jesus hear that next? When he's hanging on the cross. If you are the Son of God, come down off of the cross. 
are the words that he hears. And he doesn't. He resists that temptation. And that had to be tempting. Why? Because there are no Christians without the cross. He stayed for me and he stayed for you. He stayed for everyone who will have him. He himself, the perfectly innocent one, on behalf of all the guilty, the one who never gave in to temptation on behalf of those of us who have, and that's all of us, gave his life so that we might be forgiven and live, so that we might have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus and the forgiveness that we find, so that we might be filled with his spirit and reorient our desires so that we might learn a new way to live and overcome temptation. So what do you do? I mean, how do you overcome temptation? I think you do that by letting the story examine you, okay? And asking yourself questions. I came up with seven, maybe you have others. So question number one is, what am I most hungry for? I mean, that's an obvious question, I think, as you look at this story. Why? Because whatever you're most hungry for, attention, affirmation, comfort, relief, whatever, safety, security, whatever that is, is a pretty good clue to where you're weakest. Secondly, what lies about God is the evil one telling me based upon the admittedly God-ordained circumstances of my life? How is he taking these circumstances and reinterpreting them for me in such a way as to then present God as unfaithful and me as by myself? Thirdly, what created things do I value and worship and serve above the Lord my God and my obedience to him? Like, where do I say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to put you in a box and you're not coming in this box. This is mine. Therein lies the answer. Fourthly, am I measuring the strength of my temptations against my own strength or against God's strength? Because it's a massive difference. And am I looking for God to give me more than just strength for today? And I think that your devotional life, like your personal worship life, your time in prayer and in God's word, where you in a humility are saying, I need you. <laughs> like, I surrender. Fill me. Speaks to that. It says, yes, I'm depending on it and I'm asking for the daily provision or I'm just trying to do this in my own strength. Fifthly, how am I interpreting or misinterpreting God's word in order to make it say something that frees me or others from the constraints or the suffering that obedience to it would otherwise require? The cost. Sixthly, how well do I know God's word by which I am to live and by which I can expose the devil's lies and send him away? I mean, all the way through this, what's the theme? It's Jesus going, it is said, it is said, it is said. He knows the word of God intimately. He has it stored in his heart. Like a concordance is a great thing and it's wonderful to be able to go and look something up and here's a topic and here's a word and here's a thing and let's learn what the Bible says about that. That's awesome. But it's even more awesome to be able to do that so much that you've got it stored up in your heart and so that when the liar comes and he speaks lies into your heart, you are valueless, you are worthless, you should do this. God is unfaithful. We have truth to draw on by which to defeat the lies. And then the last one that I came up with anyway is, have I truly surrendered my failures to Jesus who knows the power of temptation better than anyone and who resisted the temptations of the tempter to forsake the cross so that he could forgive me of all the ways I've given in? When we prayed with the team before the service, you know, normally I'll say a few things about the message. And I said, you know, I think the goal of this message is not to have people walk away going, oh, I'm so miserable. <laughs> 
Like if that's what you walk away, then, then we have failed. The goal uh, of the message is, is to equip you to deal with temptation by calling you to Christ through whom you are forgiven and relieved of all guilt and shame. All of it, not some, past, present, and future. And then to teach you how to learn in humble reliance to submit to him and to depend on him little by little, more and more, day by day, give me your manna that I might overcome temptations no matter how powerful they may be. So that's what we're looking for for you. And that's what we hope you walk away from with at the end of our service, okay? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you do not leave us to battle through this life on our own, uh, but that you stand ready and willing at all times, Lord, to provide us with the grace that we need. God, we thank you for Jesus who has not forsaken us. We thank you for Jesus who defeated all temptations and the tempter himself, not just for himself, but for us. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us by your Spirit. God, that we would hear your voice. That we would have faith by which to receive what you say on this topic. And Lord, to be renewed. Renew our hearts and our minds. Enter in and change our passions. Lord, remove and, and undo by the power of your blood what we've done. And replace it with you. Do these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.